Hi guys, welcome back. <laughs> I have groupies, cool. <laughs> oh, that was I was rolling just then. So we're here this time to talk about the issue of college, higher education. And I've titled the talk. Uh, something along, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of the most important reason to send your kids to college and to be wary in the process. And the reason I chose that title is that I wanted to communicate two things to you. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make an assertion at the beginning of the talk and then see if I can't back it up as we go along. And please feel free to disagree. This is sometimes a topic where there's some disagreement, and I hope there is, so that we can hash some things out. Because I'm always learning just like you are, and I want to make sure that we have a free exchange of ideas. But let me just make an assertion out the gate. that That is, I think it's important for homeschool parents to consider higher education for their kids. I think it's important. I think there's some good reasons to send your kids off to college. And I also think that it is potentially dangerous. It's a potentially dangerous thing to do. There there are good and weighty reasons that you should be very careful about doing that. And you should choose the college that they go to extremely carefully. And so my assertion is you ought to consider it. You ought to really think about it. And also you ought to do it advisedly. Okay, so let's just start there. The reason I titled the talk the way I did is that I think the reason you should consider it and the reason you should be careful are one and the same. And that is that education is at stake in your decision. Education is at stake. And what I mean is, if you don't send them to college, now I'm going out on a limb here, if you don't send them to college, there's a sense in which their education will be incomplete. And you will not have finished the grand task that you've been involved in up to now. However, the other side of education is at stake is that they could, it's possible that they could go to college and be shipwrecked in their education because the stakes are very high and the enemy is on the prowl in the North American Academy, we'll say. So I want to go into the reasons why I think that and then hopefully have some extended time for discussion. Um, I don't know if, if while you're in the room today, if you have older kids and you're starting to consider that issue, some of you are in that situation yourself and going off to college soon. Uh, maybe you're just looking ahead, for which I commend you. I haven't been looking ahead and I have a 15-year-old now and it's starting to dawn on me slowly that pretty soon he's going to be ready to go off to college. He's starting to talk like he wants to do that. I'm thinking, are you crazy? You're not going anywhere. <laughs> I spent a long time in higher education in America myself. I have a bachelor's degree from a small liberal arts college, and then I went to a big state university in, in Seattle, Washington, University of Washington, to get a master's degree in history. And then I did all the coursework for the PhD in history there at the University of Washington in Seattle. I am working quote-unquote, working on my dissertation in American history, my doctoral dissertation. It's on American Presbyterianism in the 1740s, if, in case you're interested, and I know you're not. <laughs> no one is interested in someone's dissertation, even if they ask. You learn when you're a doctoral student not to answer, because they don't care. But I'm working on this dissertation, and I very well may finish it someday and be, be known as Dr. Adam Andrews, at which point I will require everyone to call me that. <laughs> <laughs> It's equally possible, however, that I will die of old age before I ever get back to it because life sort of has a way of getting in the way of stuff they're not paying you for, if you know what I mean. So anyway, I have some experience in higher education myself and I, I kind of know some of the rules by, on which it functions. There's a worldview in higher education. There's a culture in higher education that, uh, well, it's kind of like Job, actually. There are some bedrock assumptions that are made in the academy that just about everybody agrees with. You can argue and fight and bicker and debate all you want, but there's some things that everybody agrees on. They don't even notice, but they're, they underlie all of the conversations. And these are the things you've got to be wary about because they're wrong. The assumptions that underlie those conversations are horribly, perniciously evil and wrong. 
And I want to talk to you about those assumptions first. So really I should flip this talk around and say why you should be very, very wary about sending your kids to college and why you should send them anyway. Okay, here it is. The three assumptions that underlie, what do we call it? The, the culture of higher education. And at least in America, and I probably would be on safe ground to say that it exists in Canada too. We'll call it North American education. And I, and I would also hazard a guess that European education is even in worse shape than North American education. Here they are, three assumptions. Number one, the physical world is what is real. The physical world is what is real. This is a question that, that falls under the philosophical category of metaphysics. It's a metaphysical principle. And the metaphysical principle is reality equals what you can sense. Reality equals what you can find out about by the five senses. Okay? Materialism. You would be you would be shocked and amazed at the extent to which this assumption underlies all conversation in higher education. If you can't touch it and feel it and see it, it doesn't exist. Science, therefore, is the ultimate arbiter of reality. Science can discover something, there is that something. If science can't, it's either because science hasn't figured out how to yet, or it's because the thing doesn't exist. So, there's assumption number one. The physical world is what's real. Assumption number two follows on number one, and that is that wisdom, because reality is physical, wisdom is expertise. Wisdom is expertise. Or, to put it another way, mastery of the physical world equals wisdom. Those men and women are wise who are experts in their field, who know all there is to know about their discipline, their subject, who have become the little gods of their little world because all of the data, which is reality, all the details of reality have come under their thumb and they master them. Assumption number three, since reality is physical and wisdom is expertise, assumption number three, education is knowledge or the accumulation of facts and skills. That's education, the accumulation of facts and skills. Information, education is information. I've spent time in the history department at an American university, as I mentioned. You would think that in a history department, a department of the humanities, where we talk about ideas like liberty and freedom and self-government and things like that, that maybe assumption number one wouldn't hold sway quite so much. The physical world is real. But I assure you, nothing could be truer. I wanted, to, do a his, I wanted to, to work in religion, history of religion. And I, foolish young Christian school graduate of high school that I was, went into the study of religion with the assumption that God exists and that we should study religion from the perspective of faith. Silly boy. I was laughed at, not laughed at, me in a mean way, but just, you know, brought along into the academic perspective, which is that religion is a social agreement between people to assume a counterfactual truth that there is some God up there and to, to go together with that assumption into life and deceive yourself as a group into acting as if there was a God. Literally true. That's the way religion is looked at in the American academy. Now, you can take it seriously. Some people do. It's, it's a very important social movement. There's no denying the fact that religion has a very important place in North American history. It's impossible to deny. But what doesn't even take denying, because it's already assumed, is that it's all a joke. It's not real. 
You can't see it. Huge chunks of the population have followed religion over the years, but the question of whether they're actually believing in a God who is there is outside the bounds of what we do at the university because it's outside the bounds of dealing with what's real. And what's real is what's physical. It holds sway absolutely. And I haven't ever been in a literature department in a higher, well, in college I was, but not in graduate school, not in higher, higher education. But it's the same there. It's the same in psychology and philosophy and all those places where you would imagine that having thoughts about ideas as pure and simple would exist. But it's tied down to that materialistic, metaphysical argument. So the physical world is real. Wisdom is expertise, mastery of the physical world, and education is fact knowledge. What kind of student, what kind of educated person does a system like that turn out? What do you get from an education like that? Well, it seems to me that you can get one of two extremes. You can either get a drone, which is someone who is prepared and equipped to do a particular job, having to do with mastery of his physical world somehow. Or you can get a self-absorbed ignoramus. Now I want to explain to you what I mean by those two things. Now obviously I'm exaggerating the extremes here. And there are, there are ways to go, to go through higher education without being duped by these assumptions. But these are the dangers. These are the two dangers. On the one side, there is the danger of a deep technical education that prepares you to be an absolute master of a technical discipline, but does not prepare you for being a human being in that discipline. There are some very rich, very successful people that have come out of the University of Washington, where I went to school, and have gone on to be spectacularly successful because of their knowledge of, say, uh, computer chip technology, or their knowledge of some, some technical field, and they are very rich and very successful and may be very fulfilled, but the education that they got at the University of Washington did not ever touch the question, what is a good life? Did not ever force them back on the question, what does it mean to be a man in this world? You can study computer chip technology from here until doomsday and never confront the nature of love. What is love? And I would submit to you that those three questions, what's a good life, what is a man, what is love, are more important somehow than what is a computer chip. And I'm saying this as someone who depends absolutely on computer technology. <laughs> I have my living today because of Bill Gates and his computer chip. And I thank God every day for Bill Gates. He's the reason I can live in Rice, Washington and work in Phoenix, Arizona, which is what I do on a daily basis. But to the extent that he went to the University of Washington and got a degree in whatever he got a degree in, actually Bill Gates didn't go to the University of Washington, but somebody like him that got a degree in computer technology, the questions that lie at the basis of a real education from my perspective are not addressed. So on the one hand, the one extreme that you run the risk of because of these assumptions is becoming an experienced, technically proficient, rich, and successful drone. The other danger on the other side of the coin is that you come out a self-absorbed ignoramus. And then what I mean by that is this. You come out having learned that since wisdom is mastery and you are a master, that you are a god. If you come out of the other end... Being a PhD student really does this to you because you pick a subject that no one has ever studied before and you know more about that subject than anyone on the face of the earth. That's why no one cares because no one knows anything about it. I know more about seven, the, the American Presbyterianism in 1740 than you'll ever know. You don't care. But I care because I went to all that trouble. I've been building myself up in my mind by adding knowledge about American religion in the 1740s until I'm the stone master of American religion in the 1740s. And if I really thought that was the most crucial topic out there, I would have a hard time not feeling like I was really something, like I was self-important. But what would I really know? 
Well, I'd know about American religion in the 1740s, and it's questionable what that has to do with anything. I mean, I think it's related to some important questions, but in and of itself, doesn't amount to a whole lot. Because of the assumptions that I may have gone to school with, the physical world is real, wisdom is expertise, education is fact knowledge, I'm not prepared to be a human being. I'm just prepared to flash my knowledge around, ask people if they've heard of my dissertation topic. Someone who goes to school based on these assumptions, goes to higher education, can certainly become a competent person, a competent engineer or accountant or computer programmer or doctor or lawyer or teacher. But he runs the risk or she runs the risk of being woefully unequipped to answer or even ask life's eternal questions. And so I would issue you a stern warning because from my own experience, I know that these three assumptions underlie higher education in North America in virtually every place. If before you send your kids to college, they need to know that, and you need to know that, and they need to be prepared to deal with it. Now, why send them anyway? Good grief, if that's the truth. If those are the risks they run, if the stakes are that high, and they can actually go spend tens of thousands of dollars, and hours and hours and hours, and really fail to address any of life's eternal questions, why send them? Well, the reason I think you should consider sending them anyway is because those three assumptions do not characterize every single college in North America. They don't characterize every single program of study in every single college of North America. They may characterize 90% of them, but there are the other 10%. There are the other 10% out-of-the-way institutions, small little schools tucked away in little hamlets that carry on a tradition of education handed down since the dawn of civilization. A tradition of true education that's based on three competing assumptions. Three assumptions that are directly at odds with the ones that hold sway today in institutions across this continent. I want to tell you what those three assumptions are. Number one, and this characterizes some colleges and universities that I'll maybe even name for you before we're done. Number one, reality is unseen. There are some places where the first principle is what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Reality is outside and beyond the world of our senses. So there are some places where that's the first principle. When you've spent some time in a place where the first principle is reality is physical and you walk into a room where the assumption is that reality is outside and beyond us, it is a mighty refreshing experience. And those are the places we need to look for. Assumption number two. Since reality is outside us and beyond us, wisdom is not expertise and mastery of our physical world. Wisdom is humility. Wisdom is adopting our proper place in the order of things. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord, which is an expression of that principle. I am not the master, I'm the servant. The, the credo of Socrates, which is somewhat, some, uh, the way that this idea presents itself in some institutions. Socrates' credo, which is, I know nothing. I don't know. That was Socrates' teaching point. When his, his students would say to him, Socrates, do you have the answer? He'd say, I don't have any idea, but let me ask you this question. And he'd lead them on into thinking of an answer for themselves. His credo, I don't know. The understanding of yourself as a creature, not as a god. This is wisdom. That's assumption number two. Wisdom is not mastery, but humility. Assumption number three. Education is not fact knowledge. But education is teaching students to ask the right questions. The right questions of themselves. The right questions of their world. Education is teaching students to reflect on their own understanding. To be thinking about something. If you can get follow with me here. I know it's the end of the day and I'm philosophizing, so forgive me. But here's education. Thinking a thought and then at the same time being able to step outside yourself and look at yourself and say, look, he's thinking a thought. In other words, to have a, have a conception of yourself as a thinking creature. Anybody can be thirsty 
A horse can be thirsty. But no horse can say, I'm a thirsty horse. Only a man can do that. Only a man can say, I'm a thirsty man. I'm different from all other men who aren't thirsty because I'm thirsty. If you see what I'm trying to say. Only a man has a conception of himself as a thinking creature. And education at this 10% of institutions that I'm talking about is directed at that self-realization. Not training people to be cogs in a machine, training them to be self-aware, thinking beings. We get students to wisdom in this this 10% of institutions by teaching them to know themselves as limited creatures, to look beyond themselves to eternal things. You'll never get that in the 90% of institutions that I've been talking about. Questions like, what is a good life? Which I think I've mentioned before today. What's a good life? What is a good love? What good is love, anyway? What is a human being? Those kinds of questions. Nobody hires you based on your ability to answer those questions. At least, not at first. But in the long run, it's the people that know the answers for themselves to those kind of questions that are the most hireable. They're the ones that end up keeping their jobs because they're the ones that are real people in the end. There exist places where our kids can go and awaken and continue the process that we've been putting them on of awakening to themselves, of having those moments of self-realization and those moments of education. My real point, though, is that not that such places exist. I know they do, and I'll tell them a couple of them as we go along. But my point is that you should send your kids to them. My point is that you ought to send your kids to college if you can find a good one. And that may be the point where there's some disagreement because maybe you're thinking, I don't need to send my kids to college. I'm giving them a great education right here. Why isn't the the education I've been giving them at home complete and sufficient? Why is college necessary if they're already reading Plato in my kitchen? Well, let me just pretend that you've asked that question. Maybe you haven't. But if you have, I'm just going to pretend you've asked it and answer it for you. I think there's four things that somebody needs in order to finish his education off. Four things. Number one, he needs intimate familiarity with a standard by which other worldviews will be judged. He needs to know, first of all, in his education. We're talking about nuts and bolts of education now. He needs to know, he needs to have a worldview handed to him from his parents. This is how we Andrews see the world. This is how we judge other worldviews based on these principles. Number two, he needs to have familiarity with, or at least exposure to, a broad range of other worldviews so he can compare them. He needs to be able to say, this is what the Andrews think, and this is what these other folks think. That's not the same. There are some differences. How do I account for those? How do I interpret those? He needs to be able to rub them together and see what sparks fly. Number three, he needs some tools to analyze and evaluate the differences between worldviews. He needs those language skills that we've been talking about all weekend. Languages, logic and rhetoric, tools of communication. And lastly, he needs opposition. He needs competition. He needs iron for sharpening iron. He needs to be involved. He needs to be standing right here when two worldviews collide right on top of him. He needs to see with his own eyes what happens when those two worldviews collide. When people who are just as smart as he is disagree with him for reasons that he can't come against easily. He needs practice at taking every thought captive, being the master of what he has learned and taking it into battle with him. And my point is this, homeschooling is the very best place for ingredients numbers one, two, and three. For inquiring, acquiring, sorry, a worldview, for gaining familiarity with other worldviews, and for having, getting the skills of analysis and evaluation so that you can compare worldviews. Homeschool is the very best thing for one, two, and three. But there's nothing like college for number four. There's nothing like it. Because when you go to college, what you, what you have is a situation where young, idealistic, idea-driven people 
who don't know yet how to just be calm and let it ride get all close together in tight proximity and start waving their flags around. If you've ever been to college, you know that's what we do. 18-year-olds get in a group and they start waving their flags around. And lo and behold, people are waving flags around for valid reasons. Flags you've never even seen before. It's really hard to manufacture that in an artificial setting. It's really hard to say to your son, I'm going to play the role of someone who disagrees with you for valid reasons. Your son's going to say, whatever, Dad. Another lesson. There's nothing like that experience of coming up against someone that you may like and respect because he's your age and you're on the intramural softball team together or whatever. And he says, I'm a communist atheist. And I dare you to prove me wrong. Someone who's a communist atheist and has thought about it as much as your kid has thought about being a Christian. Oh man, that's a great experience. And there's nothing like college for having that experience. I was a freshman in college at Hillsdale, which is a a conservative liberal arts college in Michigan. And I came from kind of a Pentecostal background when I was a kid. And so we talked about Pentecostal type issues, like God speaking to you know, God speaking to you on a regular basis by his Holy Spirit and those sorts of things. And my, my roommate was a Catholic. And he was a, an Orthodox Catholic who hadn't been part of the Catholic charismatic renewal. And he was a very traditional pre-Vatican II type Catholic. He liked the, la- the Mass in Latin and the whole nine yards. And so we were talking about religion one day, as freshmen in college will do. And I mentioned that God spoke to me once. He said, oh, really? I said, yeah. He said, how do you know? I said, why? I had no answer I was pretty sure God had spoken to me and he goes yeah that's not really an answer that's not good enough for me anyway you were pretty sure come on you can do better than that I couldn't I couldn't do better than that I had just been told by my father that God speaks to us I had assumed God spoke to me I'd felt like God was speaking to me but I could not give an account of how that could be so now, this was a very calm and, and uh, low-level conflict opposition because this guy was a Christian, too. And he wasn't out for the uh, damnation of my soul. He wasn't trying to destroy me. He was just having a conversation with me. And our worldviews collided. And I have never been the same because I realized it's not enough just to say, well, we Andrews think this. Not that it isn't right to go along with the worldview that you've been handed by your father, but my father's not here. Here I am in Kelowna, British Columbia. My dad doesn't even know where I am today. Right? I mean, if someone, if, if we need to, if I need to give you the reasons for my worldview, I've got to get him from somewhere besides my dad. He's gone. So at some point along the way, they've got to become my own. And there's nothing like college for making them your own. There's nothing like it. I learned a lot of lessons from my dad. He was a preacher, I think, I think I've mentioned. And... Uh, uh, he gave me a wonderful background in, a, in what I still consider to be a really good worldview, a real foundational worldview. I was very confident that I had the answers to life's questions when I went off to school. You can imagine me being very confident. I was, man. I just knew all the right answers. But they were answers without questions, if you know what I mean. I had been told, here are the answers to life's questions, but I had never asked the questions. I had no questions. I lived in a world full of answers which was a great blessing. And I thank the Lord for it every day. And I hope that I can bring my kids up in a world with no questions, only good answers. But at some point I had to ask the questions or at least be confronted with them so that I could make the answers my own. I had heard the questions, don't get me wrong, but I had no doubt along the way that they were the questions of mindless fools. Only idiots would ask those questions to which I have all the right answers. But I went to college and realized that isn't true at all. Very, very intelligent, earnest, honest, good-hearted people have those questions. And they don't like my answers for reasons that I have never confronted before. Until I took those answers into battle with me, they weren't my own. They were just an accumulation of facts. And over the course of many battles with guys like my college roommate, and other people at my school, those questionless answers became something more. They became ideas that were my own ideas that I could take into battle with me 
whether or not my father was around to back me up. The effect of that number four, that having opposition and competition, is to bring us into a greater realization of who we are, greater realization of what kind of creature we are, to bring us into a knowledge of our limitations, to drive us back to God for everything that we need. And I think going to college is a great way to do that. Now, you have to be wary. You have to know the state of the college. You've got to know whether those three assumptions I mentioned at the beginning of the talk rule the day at the school. But you also have to be wary of your student. You have to know kind of where your student is. You know, he's at a turning point when he's getting ready to go off to school. He's 18 years old. He's coming awake. He's reaching the end of maybe what we call in classical education, reaching the end of that logic stage of development. He's getting into that rhetoric stage where he's trying out his ideas. Maybe it's time he has a chance to use them, his ideas and the skills that he's been developing. Maybe it's time he had a chance to use them in the arena they were meant for, the marketplace of ideas. On the other hand, maybe it's not time yet. And in the end, that's a a call that only a parent can make. Because there are other dangers at college that I haven't even addressed today. And those are the dangers of the social dangers. Those are the dangers of drugs and uh, immorality and all the other things that run rampant on a, on a place where 18 to 22-year-olds are crammed together for long periods of time. But the question is, how well do you know your son or daughter? And the other question that maybe we can talk about for a minute is, are the benefits worth the risks? Maybe some of you parents are thinking along those lines as well. Here's the conundrum then in a nutshell. You may see the things I'm telling you that he needs, a collision of worldviews, opposition, exposure to well-presented disagreement. You may see those things as the very things you're trying to protect him from. And you'd be right if you're thinking of exposing him to those things too soon. This is why we educate our young children at home during the first few years of his life. Because there's, not, there's a time before which you don't want him to expose to any opposition at all. So the, really the question is, when is he ready to encounter some well-considered, well-thought-out opposition? I submit to you that it's an important stage of his development that, and that in a sense his education isn't complete until he's taken it onto the battlefield and come back with nicks and cuts and broken bones. But the real question is, when are we ready to turn him loose? When is the right time? And I don't know the answer. But I do know that if we, if we delay that process inevitably, it's going to come a time when they're torn out of our hands and they go onto the battlefield in spite of us. And I think probably we do better if we send them and we say, I know what I'm doing. It's time. Communicate with me along the way. You are now in the next stage of your education. And I hope you hold your shield up, because here they come. What do you think about that? Who's, who, is in the, who in the room, and how much time I have? I have a little time. Who in the room is considering sending a student to college in the next few years? A couple of you? And are you leaning toward, you don't have to share if you don't want to, but if you're, if you're open, are you leaning toward um, keeping them home? Are you leaning to sending them to a particular kind of school? What, what are you thinking? Well, you know, I, it's really true. I, I think the, the main difference in my experience between a Christian university, well, let me just put it this way, between the Christian universities that I visited before I chose my college and the non-Christian ones is the Christian universities had the students sign a statement of faith before they entered. 
And my experience in the classroom, in some of them at least, was not much different than it would have been at a secular university. And that's because these three assumptions about the physical world being real and wisdom being mastery of the physical world, those are not anti-Christian assumptions, at least on the surface. They sneak in to the classroom, even in a Christian school, sometimes. And those are the, those are the assumptions that really sap the life out of an education. Those are the dangerous ones, because they are anti-Christian. When you get right down to it, it's not true that the physical world is all there is. God is real. And to say that he's not is an abomination and an offense. But you don't have to say it out loud to believe it and to teach it. So it's dangerous. It's hard to tell sometimes. I think sometimes a Christian school is, you need to look and ask some questions based on those three assumptions to whoever. In fact, I would advise going to the admissions department of the school. This is what my dad and I did. He was really concerned about these kind of issues when he sent me. And so we went to the admissions counselor and said, we have some questions for you. And my dad was kind of, my dad's always kind of a political activist. And, and uh, um, he asked the admissions department, what's the, what's the school stand on abortion? That was my dad's big question. He liked to <laughs> make friends and influence people. <laughs> he once prayed, God, make me a fork in the road to people. And God said, okay. <laughs> So that's the question that pops out of his mouth. And so we had admissions directors fumbling all over themselves trying to say something non-offensive, right? Something that would make sure that we sent the kid. And uh, he was not impressed with a lot of their answers. One Christian university, which shall remain nameless, said, well, our school doesn't take stands on uh, moral and political issues. He said, oh, it doesn't, does it? See you later. So anyway, I think there, in the spirit of what my dad used to do, I think there's some questions you could ask of admissions departments as you're considering whether to send your kids to college. Not the abortion one necessarily, but how about this one? What is the purpose of an education at this institution? Why, do you, why are you in the business of educating kids? And have your ears pricked up for an answer that comes back along the lines of, we want to teach them to see themselves a right. What my the the uh, president of the, my alma mater, Hillsdale College, was taking his daughter to UCLA or USC or some huge um, Western United States university, and went, had a conversation with the admissions department. And he said to the admissions director, "What will my daughter be required to study here?" He had his own little list of questions cooked up, and the admissions director knew the answer, and he sort of smiled smugly and said whatever she wants. We are a very diverse institution allowing the student to experience on her own anything she likes. And my, the president of my college said, well, let me just ask you something. You're in the business of giving young students an education, right? Yes. Well, this sort of assumes, he said, that she doesn't have one already, right? Yes. So he says, so why should she get to choose? Why don't you have a course of study marked out for her already? Why are you not in the business of saying to young students, you haven't finished your education yet. This is the education we're going to give you. And the admissions department went, uh, well, uh, we are a uh, diverse uh, institution. <laughs> and he said, thank you very much. See you later. No answer. Wrong answer. <laughs> At least to his little list of questions. Develop your own list of questions as you start investigating colleges and universities. Ask them questions. Go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, if it's a big state university or a provincial university or whatever, a uh, big government-funded school, the admission statement and the, the statement of purpose is, will probably be fairly broad and useless, more or less. But there are um, probably things in particular departments that you could access, paperwork on the web or something like that. And then I really do think that a live conversation with somebody in a decision-making capacity would be really helpful. For instance, if the admissions department says, well, I don't really know the philosophies of... You could stop and say, why not? I mean, I need to, can I talk to someone who does? Because I need to know. It's important. The stakes are really high here. I want to know if 
you believe at this school that the physical world is all there is? That's what I want to know. Ooh, that's the question. If I, well, I guess my turn's coming in a couple of years here. Now, that's the question I'm going to want to know. Do we admit here at University X that reality is beyond what we see and hear and feel with our senses? Because if not, I need to go somewhere else. Yes, ma'am. There's the great question. That's the great question that always comes up in this particular talk. And I think that's the one that I have to say, with some of my kids, I, I think I will be comfortable. And with some of them, there's no way in the world I'm going to let that happen. At least not until some things change. <laughs> Just until there's some development that goes on. And I don't know. I mean, I'm a skittish, sometimes like a skittish dad. But um, for my oldest son, who's 15 now, I think he desperately needs to be out on his own and trip and fall on his face a couple of times and try a few things out because he's extremely arrogant. And he... I have no idea. It's his mother. That's where he got it. <laughs> what he has... He's grown up in a world full of answers and he's never asked... A, he's never had a question put to him that he didn't have the answer to already. So he needs to go away and have nowhere to turn but up. But my oldest daughter... I, I don't know if I'm going to send her off or not. I think that's a question that you have to make as a family. I don't know. I, maybe in some ways you do. In some ways you do. I actually had a, a conversation with Missy about that recently. And I actually think, maybe it's because I'm sort of an arrogant personality myself, but I think everybody's arrogant. I think everybody is self-centered completely. And unless we get unless the Lord leads us out of it or we get it beat out of us. We're self-centered people. And what I think tends to happen, at least in where I live, the, the public school system is kind of rough. And the, uh, the public school kids tend to have their brash self-centeredness beat out of them a little bit because you can't really survive in a government school setting if you're really out there. So they've learned to cover it up. Whereas my kids haven't <laughs> they have not learned to cover anything because we don't spend time beating it out of them i guess <laughs> so maybe it's that it's not masked as well among homeschool kids that'd be my best guess all i know is that my kids have a problem with it and so i'm using thinking about using college with my oldest son to give him a fighting chance <laughs> I don't know that I've ever thought of, of whether I have an opinion about that or not. And I, I've often thought that I would have loved the chance to have gone to Bible school for a while and just been able to spend 100% of my time studying those particular subjects. And I, I guess, I'm talking off the top of my head, but I guess if one of my kids said, Dad, I really want to go to Bible school, I would say, by all means, let's, let's, let's investigate Bible schools and let's find one where I like the answers to my little questions. And because... I would not be a bit surprised to find a Bible school that gave me the wrong answers to these questions. I think the state of, of North American culture in the 21st century is such that those questions rule the day in all areas. But if we could find one that answered the questions right, I would think it would be a great idea. I've been to It's a great place for the same thing. Mm -hmm. Good point, yeah. A mission trip is a great way to have to encounter that opposition, that clash of worldviews, that, that battle in the mind. Wait a minute, I thought I had the answers all lined out. Suddenly, I'm not so sure anymore. What's going on here? And we don't want to give our kids that experience too soon by any stretch. But once they're ready, we need to give it to them in big doses. We need to have that on a consistent basis until they're adults, until it's time to go be their own family. Yes, sir. Thanks for bringing up the point with the opposition. I haven't really thought about that as much, but from my perspective of why I wouldn't consider, I have a daughter and son, why I wouldn't consider college maybe one of them is because one shows more entrepreneurial 
your own security. Mm-hmm. And being a, a business owner myself, I know the statistics of people that don't finish college and running their own businesses and companies and being able to go ahead and teach my children how to run their own businesses from home instead of going to a school, maybe learning more of a, maybe more of an employee mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the reason why I didn't want to send to college or university in my mind. And it's a few years still anyway, but that was my concern. Let me see if I got it right, because the, you, you realized that there was a risk if he did go to college that he would come out with an employee mentality as opposed to an entrepreneur mentality? So. Is that what you're saying? So. And that was just my, mm-hmm. my perspective. Of it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, didn't finish, I was almost finished in college and I quit because I knew that I was taking graphic design, I didn't like the lifestyle, and I knew I wanted to go into business. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was just learning from the you know, street side about business. Yeah. Yeah. I realized one of them was more entrepreneurial than the other. Mm-hmm. So, but thanks for bringing that. Well, I, and obviously, this is a great example of how you are the father. You obviously spend huge amounts of time and effort and love and energy thinking about those kids and thinking what's best for them, and you're the only one who knows. Yeah. And so, I guess my, what I see my role as is suggesting to all of you that there are great benefits to be gained from going in a liberal arts direction. For higher education and encountering the big questions that I've been talking about all weekend. And it ought to be something we consider. Whether or not we end up doing it, that's up to you. And it's going to be fine because you are the ones who love those little guys and you're the ones who are going to do what's best for them and take care of them. And you know way better than I whether he needs to go to college or not. If you do consider college, I would highly recommend you consider at least a liberal arts college, which is the kind that gives general education in the liberal arts. Does anybody know what the word liberal means in that phrase, liberal arts? Excuse me? Sort of. Sort of. Liberal is from the Latin, which means free. And the liberal arts are those subjects and studies which are appropriate to a free man. This is a great idea. Liberal arts are the studies that make a man free and self-sufficient and independent. In other words, that enable him to think for himself. The liberal arts are the ones that enable him to think for himself because they teach him who he is in the light of God, what his limitations are, what he's good for up in his mind. So I would encourage a liberal arts school or a liberal arts program. The subjects that are involved in the liberal arts are what you might expect, philosophy, history, literature, um, some religion, uh, Economics, this, the kind of things that are not really good for anything. Right? <laughs> kind of things that don't really help you get hired. Those are the liberal arts. They don't help you get rich. They help you get free. So sometimes you have to juggle. Let me give you, I have to leave you in a couple minutes, but let me give you some suggestions. Last time I gave this talk, everybody said, well, can you give me a, um, suggestions of schools to consider? And I dropped the ball completely and was able to suggest only one college. And so I've done a little research and I have some suggestions for you. First, let me suggest my alma mater. I am not on the payroll, by the way, of my alma mater. I went to Hillsdale College in southern Michigan, which is a liberal arts college in the grand old tradition. And I will send my kids there unless they defy me and go somewhere else on their own ticket. My son said, you know, Dad, I don't think I want to go to Hillsdale. I think I might want to go to a big state college. I said, that's fine, son. You can go wherever you want. If you want me to contribute a dime to it, however, you're going to Hillsdale. <laughs> Probably as the years go by, I'll soften up on that. But that's the stand now. So let me, let me just encourage you to investigate a place like Hillsdale College, a small liberal arts school. There's another one in Pennsylvania called Grove City College that's also a good one uh, for the liberal arts. But then I went online and found a couple places in Canada that focus on uh, the great books, that focus on a liter- literature-based education in the liberal arts. And I thought I'd mention to you, I don't know if you're aware of these or not, but these, these might be some to consider. Um, a couple in Ontario, Brock University. Anybody ever heard of Brock University? In St. Catharines, Ontario. It has a great books, liberal studies program. And again, what that's designed to do is to confront students with the issues I've been talking about this weekend through the literature of the Western world. 
Carleton University in Ottawa. It has a College of the Humanities where, and again, the questions I'll bet, now I haven't called all these admissions departments, but the answers to those three questions would be good ones in my estimation at these places. Concordia University in Montreal has a liberal arts college which functions on a great books program. And then there's one in Nanaimo, BC, on Vancouver Island. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. M-A-L-A, what? That's the one. Malaspina? has a liberal studies program that's on the Great Books model that you might investigate. That's actually out in this neck of the woods. These places are not necessarily Christian colleges. In fact, some of them are not Christian colleges. But in my own experience, and just take this for what it's worth, this is just me talking and I'm just another homeschool dad. In my experience, the first question I would ask would not be, are you a Christian college? That would not be my first question. As fervent and committed a Christian as I am, and as high a priority as the Christianity of my children is, that's not the first question I would ask of the college admissions department. First question I would ask is, what's real here? You might try the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Their foundation year program, their first year program is a great books oriented. And then for others, uh, check out Mortimer Adler's website. Do you guys know who Mortimer Adler is? He's a guy that put together a, a kind of an encyclopedia of ideas called Great Books of the Western Tradition or something like that. And he's dead now, but his foundation has a website. And they basically list colleges around the world that function on a program of liberal arts along the lines of what I've been talking about. It's thegreatideas.org. Thegreatideas.org. So let me close by saying if you are considering higher education for your kids, I applaud you. I think it's the great crowning achievement of a good education. And I pray that you, would, that you would take the time to make an informed decision. And I suggest that you come up with a list of questions that get down to the root of what's the difference between a good education and a bad one. And be prepared to be proactive with your kids in asking those questions of the powers that be on campus. Thank you.